0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is a woman who needs no introduction in the world of podcasting, hosting one of the most popular podcasts in the UK and Australia. She's also made us feel a lot less ashamed when we're not quite the perfect feminists we want to be. I'm, of course, talking about the guilty feminists, Deborah
0: Frances white Now, have we met before? Well, Julia, we haven't actually met, but once I got on a plane in Australia, a domestic flight, and I spotted you because... Let's be clear, you were the Prime Minister, so I knew what you looked like. And you were wearing my Carla Zampatti jacket. If you're listening and you don't know who Carla Zampatti is because you're global, because I believe this this podcast is broadcast on Her Majesty's internet, Carla Zampatti is one of the most famous clothes designers in Australia. And I'm a big fan of hers and I have a lot of Carla Zampatti and I saw you were wearing my jacket. To be fair, you had not picked up my jacket off the back of a chair in the, in the airport lounge. I believe you'd purchased the same jacket. But we were on the plane in the same jacket. And I rang my mum and went, you'll never guess who was on the plane.
1: I'm I'm glad that story's ended with a jacket rather than me getting stuck into the red wine on the flight or something else.
0: (laughs) Funnily enough, I didn't monitor your drinking. (laughs) I didn't think to, Julia, but I should have in retrospect, clearly. Was it a morning flight? No, it was an afternoon flight. Yeah, so Um, there was a glass of red wine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unlikely to be drinking in the afternoon, potentially an evening flight. (laughs) Glad I didn't steal your jacket. We're going to talk about your legendary show, The Guilty Feminist. But before we do that, I want to take you back to your Australian roots, You grew up in Brisbane. When was your feminist light bulb moment? When did you say to yourself, gee, I'm getting treated differently because I'm a girl?
0: Well, I have to say, I think I became more aware of it when I became a Jehovah's Witness. Before that, I do remember small things. I remember at school being taught that the default was he. So if you didn't know if somebody was a he or a she, for example, it was just you were just saying, if a judge enters the courtroom when he steps towards the bench, everybody should stand up. And I do remember questioning that and saying, but why is the judge always a he? And being told by the teachers that's the correct default. And I do remember thinking, but doesn't that make everyone imagine a man? And the answer is yes. Yeah. The Sapphire-Whorf hypothesis will tell us that uh, language shapes ideas. And I think I always felt that wasn't going to change very much. If we always imagine judges as men, then we'd always be surprised if a woman wanted to become a judge, and therefore we'd have fewer female judges and, lo, I was right. <laughs> you, were, you were absolutely right. Now, I think the statement
1: before I became a Jehovah's Witness possibly needs a little bit of explanation.
0: Julia, it does need some unpacking. I appreciate that. So I was raised in a very sort of regular Australian household. I went to Sunday school, but it wasn't a, you know, especially religious house. But when I was a teenager, my family studied the Bible with Jehovah's Witnesses and ended up getting baptised. And my life shifted significantly because the Jehovah's Witnesses are a high control group. So everything that you think now is thought out for you and your actions are monitored quite carefully. And the punishment for leaving, whether or not they decide you've contravened or you just think I've had enough of this and I I don't believe this anymore, is shunning. So everyone will stop talking to you. But you're not allowed friends outside. So that means if you leave, you were going to be completely isolated. And that's why it's a high control group. I think a, a useful definition of a cult is any group that won't let you leave with your dignity intact and they won't. So I think within that, the reason that I think my feminism got ignited was there was never in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses been a decision made by a woman.
1: And leaving all of that must have been incredibly painful then. How do you remember that journey of deciding this isn't for me and going through that very difficult process?
0: Well, I think I woke up slowly and I just started started thinking this doesn't feel right. They encouraged you to go to all the meetings and not, I wasn't allowed to go to university and I'd worked very hard to get into university and then during my teenage years, become a jehovah's witness, and then was told basically on the on the evening of my baptism, you won't be able able to go to university now i hadn 't realized that and there was a great deal of pressure i mean technically, you could it wasn 't a disfellowshipping offense, but they made it so clear that if you were to go to university, you were probably going to learn about evolution. And I said, well, I'm studying English and Japanese. I don't think it's going to come up. And they said, no, but there'll be immorality at university and there'll be exposure to these ungodly ideas. So there was a lot of pressure. They they were possibly right about the immorality at university. I I do not know what you mean. Later, I did when I left, I did go to university and, you know, silver linings, I got to go to Oxford, which was amazing. I didn't see any immorality there. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny any fornication that may or may not have taken place at the University of Oxford. But I think that my feminism really did get ignited when I was a Jehovah's Witness because I remember, really, because they're such avid Bible students. So I really did know the Bible very well. And women are not treated very well in the Bible. I don't know if you've read it, Julia, but... It's not a great place for women. So I used to say, but why is this woman being treated like this? Why is this woman, you know, who has been sexually assaulted being treated like this? And I couldn't understand it. And I would talk to the elders about it and they would say, oh, well, you know, Jehovah in his wisdom, X, Y and Z. So I secretly used to have these like feminist rants (laughs) to my friends and they would always say, oh, you can't speak like that or we'll have to report you to the elders. But I was such a sort of devout Jehovah's Witness. I used to knock on doors full time and only work part-time for Carla Zampati, funnily enough. I think I used to, because I was so devout, get away with these feminist rants that nobody else seemed to think or feel. Uh, the other women used to say, well, I don't feel oppressed or this is Jehovah's way. And I used to think, but how can you not? Like, how can we worship this God who doesn't really rape women, according to the scripture? And then, you know, there'll be theologians of all different faiths who will argue that that's not the case and it's how we interpret the text. But overall, I think we need to be pretty honest and say you have to search very hard for women being treated well in the Bible. And so you made the
1: decision Oxford rather than a continuation of the faith because you were already seeing this set of flaws, particularly from a gender perspective.
0: It was much more subtle than that. So I went to America for a year and lived with a family there as a nanny and I think it started to wear off because I was living with a family who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. That's why they tell you not to do it. You'll Mm. wake up. And I just started to see, well, these people aren't Jehovah's Witnesses and they're living a really happy life and they're good people and they're kind to their children and they've got interesting worldviews and interesting friends, they're doing all these things. And I just suddenly thought, I don't think this is right. I don't don't think I believe this. And so it just started to fall away. And so I decided when I got back to London that I would never go back to the meetings again, the Jehovah's Witness meetings, out of guilt. I'd only go if I wanted to go. Never went again. (laughs) Never went again. And I think then the first thing I did was apply for university. I wasn't going to apply for Oxford because I thought i never get in. But a friend said, no, they'll like you because I learned to speak Japanese at school in Australia and I'd learnt sign language because I was a an interpreter at the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. So they said, you know, you do these interesting things, improv and things. They said, they'll like you. You should just go and be interviewed. And I just blagged my way through the interview, Julia, to be honest with you. <laughs> blagged it. Blagged it. And clearly had good results from my HSC in Australia and, and had to do a refresher course and managed to get in. And But do you know what? When I got to Oxford, I was surprised there wasn't more feminism. I was so excited to be a feminist. It's my first thing. But when I talked about it in the JCR, the Junior Common Room, a lot of young women there would say to me, well, we've got equality now and it looks like you're trying to get an unfair advantage. Ooh. And then, I mean, this was 97, Tony Blair had just got in. Things could only get better. That was our theme tune. <laughs> turns out things can get worse that that wasn't right he was wrong and it was brit pop it was ladette culture and gender studies was a thing you did you know you wrote a feminist essay about a jane austen novel but it wasn't living breathing women weren't talking about it all the time women weren't discussing it women weren't creating groups now i'm sure there was a feminist society but it wasn't just active and buzzing in a petri dish like it is now you go to oxford now You know, go to there to do a debate. People surrounded by young people who listen to The Guilty Feminist daily activated. So, this is a very exciting time for women, I think. Getting more and more into
1: comedy, how did you find that experience? I had Sandy Toxvig on an earlier episode of this podcast talk to me about how male dominated the world of stand up was
0: and in many ways still is. Did you find that? Well, improv is pretty balanced, improv's pretty collaborative and at least in workshops often the people chosen for the shows are men because of the history of the world but that's shifted a lot now and you know the big improv groups in this company like showstopper and ostentatious are all very yeah you know, female driven and the gender balance is amazing but once i got into stand up oh yeah i mean really really male and you felt it you know is it
1: the crowds or the people who own the venues or the other
0: comedians it's everything it's absolutely everything. Now, when I found my biological mother, as I was adopted, I found my biological family. At first, you know, you're looking for performers. You're looking for, why am I a performer? Why am I, my, why am I the only person in my family who's a performer? It must be in my genes. And at first, when I met my family, it wasn't obvious. But it, I found out, I met my grandfather. And he told me that his mother was not only a performer, but lived in London. Oh, and I was like, I knew it, I knew it, because I'd always wanted to live in London and I'd always had this performer bent. And she was actually in a music Hall. She had a comedy double act with her sister, Lucy. And when they split up the double act, Hetty, my great-grandmother, became a ballet dancer and Lucy became a comedian. So my great-aunt was a comedian in London. And this was extraordinary to find out, because I thought, what are the chances of a woman being a comedian? Before the First World War, great, actually. Really great. Really? Yeah, women were funny before the First World War. Somehow it wore off. But no, it's amazing. You look at the bills. They're half women or more than half women in vaudeville music hall. So I followed Lucy around through the censuses. And she's always staying in a different digs. Because always with different showbiz people, always on the road. And what I loved about it was every single time she's asked her age on the census, she's always 23. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, she's staying with other showbiz people. 23, always 23. She wasn't even 23 the first time she said it. Showbiz has never been any different for women. But I started looking into music hall and it turns out, no, it's really female. I am really interested in doing a documentary about this. So please hit me up if you're listening and you're, you're into me making a documentary about this. So yes, I started looking into it. And this is my theory that I want to make a documentary about. That when Music Hall started to die, TV started to to take its place. And it's in a way why why Music Hall did die, because you didn't need to go out to be entertained anymore. And then the two conduits to television were stand-up comedy through working men's clubs. And women couldn't participate there because they were working men's clubs. Or, if you're posh, Footlights, Cambridge, Oxford. And Footlights, if you look back through... The history on Wikipedia has been a very male domain. And of course, that's shifting now. But even now, I would say it's part of a history. It's holding hands with many, many famous people who we know, and many fewer of those are women. And so Music Hall, when that dried up, the pipeline for women having a place to play and find their funny and find their audience and find their routine dried up. And it is always this way. And what, what I'm excited about with The Guilty Feminist is it has become a microclimate for success for women. If I say, and now please welcome to the stage Susan Wacoma, the audience like, Susan Wacoma. Either they know her from the show and they're so thrilled or they're like, we've never heard of her, but she sounds amazing. She's a woman and we're <laughs> in a female space and we know that she'll share the values of The Guilty Feminist. And then that performer comes out to this projection of, of success to this excitement of success and they rise to that and now they're even better than they were going to be and then the audience project more mm. magnificence upon them and so on in a loop and that's like being a man in a regional comedy club right. so many women have said to me god this is what it must be like to be a man at jonglers <laughs> because if you are a white man in skinny jeans at jonglers you know you come out you look like someone off Mock of the week there's a projection of oh you're going to be great So if I go out to a regional comedy club, and I have done it many times, I will see people in the front row of the audience look at each other and in front of my face say, I don't find women funny, I don't like women ones. Genuinely, they say it. And you just have to go, okay, I'm going to have to spend the first five minutes of my set overcoming your expectation. That women aren't going to be funny. Right. And people come up afterwards in the bar. If every time you have a good gig in a comedy club, I think to a fault every time I've had a good gig in a comedy club, someone will come up to me at the bar and go, just wanted to tell you, um, I don't normally find women funny, but you were hilarious. Oh. And I, I'm like, what am I meant to say to this? Thank you for resting your bigotry for a full fifteen minutes. <laughs> it's like, you know, like I, I don't know what to say, but I don't believe you because I think you find your mum funny, your sister's funny, your your partner funny, your f- best mates funny. I don't. Women say it to me. Women say it to me, and I'm like, you. When you go out on the town with your girlfriends and you get a bottle of fizz on the table and whatever, you roar with laughter. You've probably peed yourself a bit with laughter. You do find women funny. You've just been fed an expectation of what a comedian with a mic looks like. I think
1: you need to make that documentary and, you know, we're a research institute but we have the professional researchers here who come up with clever ideas. I just come up with kooky ideas. But I've got this idea that we should get a comedy script And on the same night, in two different venues, get a woman to perform that script and a man Mm. to perform that script and to monitor reaction to see if we can get to the bottom of the gendered bit. So we've got projects in front of us, things to do. Interesting
0: experiments. An
1: interesting experiment. Now, I live in Adelaide and I think Adelaide has been pretty important to
0: you. Or am I just talking up my hometown? No, absolutely you're not. You are completely right. In 2011, I went to the Adelaide Fringe Festival I had so many revelations in Adelaide about feminism. This was 2011, and it was just before this big rebirth of feminism. Now, listen, I'm aware there's been feminism throughout the ages, but I listened to Gloria Steinem speak a few years ago, and she said a movement has to be moving somewhere. And I feel like the movement really started moving somewhere again around 2012, 2013. Chimamanda, we should all be feminists, Bridget Christie, a big for her. No more page three. There were just so many things bubbling up then. Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman, Malala speaking up, living like this golden example of, of possibility for girls. And it was just before that that I just started having this feminist awakening because you tune into a zeitgeist. Mm. And one of the things that happened to me in Adelaide was that you, know, you find your little gang at a festival, <laughs> they were all boys. Because it was comedy and it was 2011, so it might as well have been 1911. Might have no, be been more women, women there. More women there, more <laughs> women. And uh, so I was hanging out with these lads in the evening after we do our show at the performer's bar, joking around, and we were swapping stories, getting to know each other. Then one night, one of them disappeared and just never came back. We didn't know where it had gone, didn't think much of it, thought, oh, he's obviously hooked up with somebody. The next night, two of them disappeared, three of them disappeared, and I started saying, where are you boys going? And finally, they cracked and told me it was a poker game oh. that the technicians were running in one of these tents in what Adelaide calls the Garden of Unearthly Delights, which the is Garden really, of Unearthly Delights. It's a, That's it's exactly a park it. Park with some tents in. Let's be honest, but <laughs> it's lovely. It's fun. It's really good fun. So the, some of the techs, after all the shows were over, were running in one of the Spiegel tents. This poker game. I know it was sort of two a.m. to five a.m. type <laughs> thing, and I said, Oh. I play poker, Texas Hold'em. Love playing poker. I'm good at poker. I said, "Can I come?" and they and the boys went, "Oh, it's a boys-only game. A boys-only game. Man-only game." I said, "But I don't know what you mean." I said, "If I play poker, surely I'll be welcome." And they went, "Well, that's the thing is, they're all text Like we're the sort of effete performers. We can't start turning up with women, you know. Like, and, <laughs> and like we're, we're barely allowed in. Come on." So. I found the one that I thought was the weakest and badgered him all day saying, well, if you want to go to a poker game that excludes women, I mean, if that's how you want to live your life, feel comfortable with yourself, if you can sleep. And so eventually he went, all right, meet me in the garden. i said, it's 2am, I'll see if I can talk you in. So I meet there. He goes into the tent, he comes back out and he goes, right, I've got you in. But just don't embarrass me. Like, don't, you know, keep your head down, basically. So in we go. It's just like this big table and this guy at the end... Who was sitting there. He looked like a pirate. And he had like big beard tattoos and stuff. And I said, good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me at your poker game. And he said, your money's as good as anyone else's. Mm. And no one else said anything to me. So I thought, right. Right. I have got to play well because I'm not just playing for me. I'm playing for all future women who might want to come into this game. (laughs) Poker women players of the world. Yeah, like I'm playing for my whole gender. (laughs) And I think this is something men never experience. Like when they go on a comedy panel show, they're playing for themselves. We're playing for women because we know that on Twitter it's going to say, oh, I don't find women funny, you know, or, oh, you know, she was actually pretty good or whatever. So I thought, right, I can't play my normal game because my normal game is very intuitive. I bet big. Now, sometimes I win spectacularly and sometimes I crash and burn, Right, but I knew that I couldn't do that here. What I had to prove above everything was not talent, but competence. Because if I crash out, uh, they make awesome. an assumption. So Women I can't, can't play poker. Right. So I can't risk showing my talent. How I need to play is demonstrating constant competence. That I know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if I win so much, as that I know what I'm doing. So everyone else was drinking and laughing. I was just like completely focused, didn't have anything to drink. I was like, I need to show. And I actually played my husband's game because he is a much more methodical player than I am. He doesn't play unless he's got cards, you know. He raises very carefully. And I was like, right, I'm going to play him like my husband. Not that it's a gendered thing, but more that I just know how to, I know how he plays. And I know that no one would think he couldn't play poker, Mm. whether he won or lost. So I'm sitting there playing and playing and playing. And I start to get more and more chips and I become the chip leader. And I start to see all of these boys kind of looking at me, going, oh, you know, reassessing. And one by one, the comedians I've come in with go out and it's just me and the techs. They all go home. (laughs) So I'm sitting there with these techs and it's getting smaller and smaller. It's a tournament. So there's a prize for the first, second and third. And there's no prize for the fourth. Anyway, we get to this point and I'm thinking, right, if I fold now, I'm going to lose some chips, but I don't really have the cards. But if one more card comes down, I'm going to be okay. So I take a risk because I look across at the pirate and he goes all in and he looks at me like, you know,
1: Mm, you're going to go all
0: in or are you going to play like a girl? Mm. So I think, no, I'm going to go all in. So I go all in and I'm riding the river. Now, if you don't know what that means... It's poker slang. It means I was on a particularly heavy period. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. It means I was waiting for the last card to come down. And if it came down in my favor, great, I'm winning. And if it doesn't, I'm out. And came down, didn't go my way. Oh. But I had come forth, and for a long time I'd been in the lead, and they had seen that I could play poker. And the pirate leaned across the table. Digeb was his name. And he stood up and he shook my hand and he said, You're welcome at my table anytime. Oh. And I was like, Yes! <laughs> I've got respect. And do you know what? What I had done was better than winning because they wanted me back. If I had won, they wouldn't have liked it, I don't think. So I thought, great. I have have not just come in, taken all the money and left. I've got respect and I've left the money on the table and I walked home. Anyway, when I got back, I told the boys and they were very impressed, blah, blah, blah. And it was only a couple of years later when I really connected with feminism that I looked back on that and I reassessed the whole thing and I thought, do you know what? I don't even know if that was a men-only game. And I rang the comedian who got me in and I said, do you remember this? He said, yeah, of course. And I said, how, do you, how did you know it was a men-only game? He said, because there are only men there. I said, did you ask? He went, no, I just assumed. And that's number one thing for feminism. Yes. If it looks like a men-only game, not only will women self-exclude, unless they're particularly bolshy like me, but men will assume women are not invited. And that includes you put your head round the door and you only see one woman in the corner, you still think it's sort of a men-only space. So in terms of being Prime Minister of Australia, it's a men-only game. You have to be very bolshy. You have to change the game. You have to say, I'm going to be the one. So if your writer's room, if your panel only has men on it, it's a men-only game. You have to be the one to actively change that space. Because people make assumptions, even if you don't you don't think it's a men-only game. You just think only men have turned up. People make assumptions. That's number one thing. Number two thing is I think it was more important to me than to them that I was a woman. I walked in going, right, I've got to play for all women. <laughs> no. But how do I know? I was looking at that man. He had a beard and tattoos. Why am I making an assumption that that man's only going to be any less feminist than a comedian? Have you ever dated a comedian? Come on now. <laughs> Let us not make assumptions about technicians. I'm projecting on him an assumption. So I just went, hmm, that man never said anything about me being a woman. It may have been nothing to him. He may have been thrilled, but I made assumptions. And then I assumed that I should play, not my way, Mm. but I should play to demonstrate competence. And this is what women do a lot because we feel like we can't take those risks because when we crash and burn, it'll be blamed on our gender. Men take those risks because if they crash and burn, it's like, oh, he's some kind of hero, he's some kind of legend, or he took a risk, or he doesn't suffer fools. He's an individual, a man is a person. A woman is a woman. And I thought, I'm never playing for competence again. I will play for genius. And if I crash and burn, I crash and burn. And you make the assumptions you want to make. And finally, the idea that it was better to go out with them liking me mm. than winning. I've retired that idea. Mm. They don't like it. They don't like it. But I'll play to win. Fantastic. And That's you... what I learned in Adelaide. <laughs> That's what you learned in Adelaide. And you took all of that into the guilty feminist. Mm-hmm. But why guilty? Because that period of time I was talking about, 2012, 2013, all the feminists that I could see in the media, I was so inspired by them. I was so elated by them. I was so thrilled to be reading their content, listening to what they were saying. But I often felt like, I don't think I'm good enough. They all seem so strident and certain. Of course, if you ask them, they're not. Of course, of course. You know, Bridget Christie's one of my best friends now. And she says, Oh, God, I don't know. You know, like, it, but <laughs> when you see her on stage, she's so. Certain, and she's very passionate. Like that's not fake. She's extremely passionate. She really believes what she believes. But of course, you know, there's things she says I don't know. But her stage presence, her stage persona, is certain. And what I kept thinking was, well, I'm a feminist bard. I don't know that I'm doing this right. Am I entitled to take up this space? And Bridget actually said to me, "You will never truly find your audience until you say what you really mean." Because she didn't have a very big audience until she started talking about feminism. She said, I thought, well, well I'll scare off the last few I've got because they know wants to hear about feminism. <laughs> and I might as well say what I'm going to say before I just leave show business and slam the door. And of course, when she said what she felt, they came in droves. She started winning awards. And I thought, well, that's right for you, Bridget. What you want to say is so definite and powerful. And what I want to say is I'm a feminist, but is this OK? I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to build. But I'm not sure. And she said, you'll never find your audience until you say what you really feel. So I thought, well, this is a gamble. Feminists might kick me out of the club. But do you know, when I said I'm a feminist but, and one of my first I'm a feminist buts was I'm a feminist, but one time I went in a women's rights march and I popped into a department store to use the loo. (laughs) And when I was in there, I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And when I said that, the audience laughed and So many women went, I have also been on a march. And I actually (laughs) left because I was like, this is too crowded. And and I ended up going to the pub and we had some gin and tonics. Then we went, oh, my God, we're bad feminists. But the thing is, we showed up to the march. And the next time I showed up to a march, I stayed longer. And the next time I stayed longer. And it's okay to get better on the job. It's okay to show up to the march and go, actually, I've only got half an hour, but I want to be here and I want to commune. And it's better than not showing up at all. You've got to build muscle. And some of the things that I say are about, you know, my interior life. I'm a feminist, but sometimes I fantasize about being sexually dominated by famous fictitious misogynist Don Draper from Mad Men. And truly believe that if I met him, I could heal his pain and make him whole. I mean, it's not okay. It's not okay. But of course, it's an interior life. It's a play space, you know, that it's not real. But we we carry these things. You know, I'm a feminist, but, you know, I sat down to watch the four-hour documentary about the suffragettes and accidentally watched 10 episodes of Say Yes to the Dress. You know, (laughs) like, occasionally, sometimes we are holding on to things that don't matter. And that turns into guilt, and guilt turns into shame. And shame is luggage. Mm. And what it means is then you turn up to that pitch because you're pitching for your funding for your feminist project, or it doesn't have to be a feminist project, for your project as a woman, And you're holding on to this luggage that am I good enough and you're a bit apologetic and you're sort of looking at your body and thinking, is it good enough? And you're carrying all of this stuff that men are not invited to carry in such quantity. Mm. Of course, they carry it in different ways, but not in such quantity. And so it's worth exfoliating. And laughing at putting it on the table, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We've all got these hypocrisies. We've all got these insecurities. Let's put it on the table. And when it does matter, and if it does matter, let's put it on the table. Let's look at it and let's work on it. Either exfoliate it or build muscle. Do do both. But that's why it's the guilty feminist. And women came in droves. Bridget was right. And not just women. Non-binary people, men, you know, people of minority genders came in droves and said, "Yes, we feel this. We carry this. We want to learn. We want to get better. We want to grow." We don't want to feel if we're not good enough now, we're never good enough. And so a lot of the guilty feminist is about separating the ego from the work, which is something Keith Johnston taught me in Impro all those years ago when I was a Jehovah's Witness reading his book Under the Pillows about creativity. Separate the ego from the work. Ego and fear are the, the enemies. Let's look at it. Let's work on it. I, hopefully, I'm not as good a comedian now as I will be in five years. Hopefully, I'm not as good a feminist now as I will be in five years. But that's no reason not to get out of bed today and have a go at being a comedian, have a go at being a feminist. The only way I'll be better in five years is if I keep trying and I keep showing up.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And with 60 million people downloading episodes.
0: 70 million, thank you, oh, Julia. Oh, no, it's 10 been, million 10 since million. since you did that research. Oh. I mean, I know, I know. I only say it because a man would. <laughs>
1: Do you think that means it's not only the message and people wanting to hear it and be involved in it, but that there's something about podcasting that enables that sort of intimacy and sense of conversation? Is it a different
0: medium than the other ones you've been involved in? Oh, completely. It's such an intimate medium. People listen with headphones. People listen when they're falling asleep. You are on their commute with them and you are in their ear. We do 52 episodes a year. We broadcast every Monday, every week of every year, including Christmas. So we bank episodes. We edit them and we have them in the in the hopper. But we broadcast 52 hours around a year. That's a lot of content. Mm. So you end up telling a lot of stuff. You tell intimate stuff, stuff that you didn't mean to tell. But you need something <laughs> and you're talking about it. And the episode's about sex or the episode's about speculums or the episode's about <laughs> democracy or power or... Shame and you are telling stuff, you're revealing stuff because you have to and you start telling these stories that you wouldn't otherwise tell and admitting things you wouldn't otherwise admit. It's a confessional medium and it's a collaborative medium. Honestly, the big secret of our show, the reason it's taken off in such a huge way is partly the talent we're able to attract and the diversity of the the guest co hosts and the guests and partly the audience. We always record in front of a live audience and If it were just me and another comedian and an activist saying, yes, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this. Oh, I do that. Sometimes I feel that. I don't think we'd have the same power. The reason people come and say to me, because of the podcast, I spoke up about the sexual harassment at work. I reported that man to the police. I said, screw this. I'm doing the PhD. I'm good enough. The reason people say those things, I left an abusive relationship, I went for the job I wanted, I quit my job and moved to a different country, I started my own podcast, I started this feminist group, I made this documentary, is because of the audience. Because they hear hundreds and thousands of people laughing and yesing and cheering and mmm and yeah, and they feel they're part of an army. Because all performers are exceptional you have three performers sitting around or two performers and an activist who, someone who works for Amnesty International, you think, yeah, those people are other. Mm. They're more confident. They're more brilliant. They're more brave. But when you hear an audience of 500 to 5,000, which is usually our audience size now, laughing and cheering and yesing and you're writing, you think, oh, those are just people. They're not exceptional. Now, of course, I know as a performer, I'm not exceptional. And I know that, you know, the people I work with, you know, I can have on someone who runs an enormous organisation and they also feel unexceptional. And I'm sure you know this, Julia, when you're Prime Minister, you just go, oh, it turns out I just have to get up and put my trousers on one leg at a time and (laughs) give it a go and think, oh, I don't really fully understand the economy, but uh, advise me quickly, quickly. Presumably that's what it's like. I don't know, is it? You're
1: very conscious of the
0: unusual way
1: people start reacting around you because they've got this image of the the office in their head and the power of the office. And so not, you know, your colleagues or the staff that work with you the whole time or your family who have known you for forever. But, you know, when you walk into an event or walk into an, a meeting, there's this sort of unusual behaviours. And you did want to say in that moment,
0: just you know, relax everybody, it's kind of Mm. just me and you still wanted that to show. Completely, completely. And I feel that too sometimes now when people meet me after a show and they're so excited and I just think I'm so delighted. I'm thrilled anyone's interested in my work. I mean, I'm always thrilled. And if anyone comes up and says hi in the street or asks for a photo, I'm always thrilled, always thrilled. Never, never be shy. I've had a few people tweet me and go, I really wanted to say hi, but I was too scared. And I'm like, genuinely, I'm a podcaster. It's fine. You can say hi. (laughs) Um, But yes, sometimes I think, oh, you're almost talking to somebody else because you're talking to the projection of somebody. And of course, every person is just a person. And the more celebrities I get to know because of the Guilty Feminist, the more I go, everyone's just a person doing a job. And everyone's thinking, I don't know how this came about. So yes, I think for any performer or any states person or, you know, Anybody doing a big job in any way or a or a glamorized job, the audience can think, "Oh, well, you're somehow more confident than me, so mm. I wouldn't necessarily think I could do it because you could do it." But when you hear that audience cheering, you think, "Well, they're just people, there's people who've turned up, and it's the tribal nature. It's like I have an army. Yes, I believe in that army. I know that when I'm on that bus and I'm looking around, some of these people listen to the Guilty Feminist and and other things like the Guilty Feminist." So there must be lots of women and other people who feel this, who are part of this army, and therefore I will act. And that's what's exciting about it. There was a little flurry on Twitter a couple of weeks ago of people saying, who would you like to be PM? And and lots of people were tweeting and saying, oh, Deborah, you should... I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) Like, I'm like, you know, firstly, I really don't understand the economy. I'm sure you did. But uh, secondly, there's a joy in having influence without compromise, you know, when you're a prime minister, presumably you have to compromise. Were there times where you felt, oh god, this is a compromise I have to make?
1: No, I didn't feel I didn't feel forced into compromises, but the art of politics is to find the maximum consensus to get things done, mm. and every politician you know, ultimately has to do that. So whether that's working with your colleagues and finding a collective strategy or whether it's going into parliament and you need to find some ways of getting the numbers together, you do have to compromise. But as long as the direction of travel, in my view, was the right direction of travel, the fact that you have to do it in increments mm. rather than one heroic leap from where we are to where you absolutely want to be, I was prepared to live with that. Not everybody could, but I think that is politics.
0: Yes, I think that's the thing that I would struggle with. I wouldn't be able to sleep. And I think people who who have the temperament for politics just can. I think the thing with podcasting and comedy and stuff is, is and the, the activism we do within the Guilty Feminist, is that we can be ideological and aspirational. And so there's a sort of real genuine joy and pulling together and tribalism in a good way, tribalism in a good way, the collaboration and teamwork. And I think I'm just more cut out for that. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not saying I'll never <laughs> run as an MP. I'm saying it's not in my immediate plans. And it's a very politician answer. I think <laughs> you uh, got some got some natural talent I, here. I just thought, oh God, what if you in ten years' time you do want to, and then people start digging this podcast yes. up and saying you said you never would? Uh, I think I'll probably go more into activism before I I go into politics. But lovely to see you've come over this way, and you're, <laughs> you're, you now have a po- podcast. Area. That's right. I've gone politician podcast.
1: You could go podcast politician. Why not? Now, you start the show with a line, I'm a feminist, but what's your favourite one out of all of the shows you've done, your favourite I'm a feminist, but line? uh, Or is that like, you know, asking someone to pick their favourite child? You really can't do it.
0: Oh, no. Well, I've said a couple already. One that's very popular is I'm a feminist, but one time I got on a light aircraft from Cape Cod to Boston. And the pilot asked me my weight in front of everybody yeah. so he could determine how much fuel should be in the plane so that we could land safely. And I lied by <laughs> 20 pounds, endangering my life, the life of the pilot, the other passengers and a border collie that was along for the ride. <laughs> when we were in the air, I was sitting next to my best gay friend, David, and I said, got a bit rocky. You know how oh. you know, light aircrafts do. And I said, David, I lied about my weight. And he went, don't worry, they knock off 10 pounds for women and gay men. And I said, but i died by 20. We have to hope somebody else has <laughs> told the truth. Yes. Um, anyway, the, spoiler, I'm still alive.
1: Uh, but I reckon you could have said, that's a really fat border collie. <laughs> Tried to get them to add some weight.
0: They should ask you in private. Uh, but it doesn't matter. I mean, people, I, why does it matter about my weight? It's ridiculous.
1: Now, we are going to move to our standard set of questions where we always start with a fact. According to a survey conducted by Stylist magazine in 2010, more than 96% of women feel guilty at least once a day, while for almost half, the feeling strikes up to four times a day. Mm. This
0: was before your podcast came out.
1: Do you think that percentage has gone down? Definitely.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We're exfoliating guilt left, right and centre. It's not a useful emotion unless there's something you're going to do about it, like, if you're going to change your habit because you think, actually, this isn't great, then, yes, yeah, useful. But then change the habit and kill the guilt. Mm. If it's just ludicrous standards that are constantly inflicted upon you that women are told, well, if you're a good enough mum, you're not going to be good enough at work. And if you're a good enough executive, you're not going to be a good enough mum. And if you're out running the marathon for charity, you're not being a good enough daughter, all of that, then we got to p- move past that because guilt tends to shame and shame is luggage. And if it's something you want to get better at it, get better at it. What's
1: the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career?
0: Oh, some years ago, five, five years ago, it was very, 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 very difficult to be a woman in comedy, certainly in this country. And I had my own BBC Radio 4 show with my name in the title and I'd just got it. So I was like, just being commissioned. I didn't have an agent. I was between agents. And I needed an agent to do the deal. And I thought, what a great time to get a really good agent because... I probably only half a dozen people a year get their own Radio 4 show with the name in the title. Mm. And often Radio 4 shows get developed into TV shows. It's sort of a, a marker, a metric for success in terms of comedy. So I wrote to all of these different agents saying... I'm doing this live show which is being turned into a radio show and it's already been commissioned and I don't have an agent to do the deal and, you know, so I'm bringing them 10% of something already and, you know, there's obviously something to work with. So you don't want an agent to take you on if they're not the right agent for you, if they don't find you funny or if they just don't think you're going to be the right person for them. But I thought they'll all come to the show now because, you know, if they've got room on their books, they'll want to come and see what are you doing and maybe you're right for me because you've got something to bring. So it'll be really easy to get them to come anyway. And then we'll see how it goes from there. And I got so many emails like this one. And this is a direct quote. I'm sorry, I can't take on any one of the female persuasion. Oh, yeah. That might sound sexist, but it's not. It's not me that's sexist. It's the industry. The industry won't take over a certain amount of women. And we already have enough women on our books. Another (laughs) one which was, um, we're a bit saturated girl-wise at the moment. Oh, girl-wise, girl-wise, girl wise. saturated, saturated, mm. girls, And I actually wrote back and said, what does saturation look like for you? <laughs> like, what's your gender balance at the moment? Because I'm really interested to know what saturation looks like. And they didn't respond to that. No. But they wrote another email. Someone more senior in the company went, oh, we really wish you well. And they, they obviously felt <laughs> like, oh, don't screenshot that. But I have those emails. I still have those emails. And I sometimes do look at them because what I said to... The woman, yes, of course it was a woman who wrote that. The men didn't bother to write back at all. Uh. <laughs> it's not. At least they at least they wrote back and explained. But the woman who wrote to me had said, that might sound sexist, but it's not, it's the industry that's sexist. I said, but we are the industry. You're an agent, I'm a comedian. If we're not going to change it, who is? Mm. Like there's, the industry isn't other from us. The industry is us. I understood what she was saying. She was saying, I can only get a certain amount of women on television. I'm already mm. trying to push the mm. three women I've got, the four women I've got. You know, I can't be adding another one into the mix. That's what she was saying. I did push back on it. I did push back and say, could you just come and see me and decide on merit whether or not you want to take me on? Not because I'm a woman, not because I'm not a man. Just because you like my show or you don't like my show, at least look at it in case you can get beyond my gender. Now, partly because of the world and the zeitgeist and Me Too and lots of things, and partly because of microclimates like The Guilty Feminist, there is now a massive appetite for women in comedy. And I'm partly responsible for making that happen and that makes me very, very happy because I know women are not getting those emails at the moment. Now, they might get an email saying, we can't take anyone else on. They might get an email saying, we didn't think your show was right for us. That's fine. Mm. But they're not going to get an email now saying, because of a thing you cannot change that is inherent to your identity, I will not consider your work. Yes. And so I'm very proud to be part of a landscape with such a significant shift. Mm, Absolutely. If you had all power in
1: your hands, if you could do anything for women, what would be the one thing
0: you would pick to do if you were just rationed to one? I would change representation globally. So overnight, 50% of people in influence, with power, on screen, wherever we looked, were female or non-binary, and within five years that would be completely normal, and within ten years that would completely reshape our planet and its goals. I'd like to wake up in that world.
1: Virginia Woolf says, Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size deborah the guilty feminist
0: says that that mirror image is shrinking daily and it's a struggle for quite a lot of men who were raised to be magnified they're having a difficult time of it and i understand it especially for young men i understand it it must be annoying to have had thousands of years of supremacy and privilege and entitlement and to have been born five years too late you like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> What I was raised to expect first in line, and you know there'd be a little pot of money for women over there, and maybe one woman would get a little bit of a development pot for her little project, but we've already got a female project on this network, this TV network, and that all the other money and all the other pots and all the other representation would be for men. And as that shifts and more space is rightly taken up by people who represent over fifty percent of the population, it's a challenging time. That image is shrinking and our reflection in the mirror is growing and occasionally there's a little bit of glee from women about that understandable it'll even out, it'll get better it's going to start to feel fairer for men as young boys grow up and that's their normal it'll start to feel fairer and more normal and less wondrous for women and if climate change doesn't kill us (laughs) and if the far right doesn't take hold and the patriarchy doesn't strike back so successfully then 20 years time we're going to have a wonderful wonderful world
1: well i look forward to joining you in that world in 20 years time thank you so much
0: you've been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london for more information on our work and to sign up to our updates Visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.